VT Nayani is a director, producer and writer dedicated to stories for the screen. Her first feature documentary, Shadism, Digging Deeper, had its world premiere at the 2015 Zanzibar International Film Festival where it received a special jury recognition. Nayani is an alumni of the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation's workshop for diverse creators, the Hot Docs Doc Accelerator program and the 2017 Real World Film Festival's Emerging 20 program. She is also a recipient of the 2017 UN Women Yvonne M Herbert Award for Filmmakers and Media Makers. In the spring of 2018, Nayani's first feature drama as a director and co-writer, This Place, was selected as a recipient of Telefilm Canada's inaugural Talent to Watch program. In late 2018, Nayani had the honor of shadowing and interning with her mentor, acclaimed cinematographer Bradford Young, on the set of Netflix's limited series When They See Us. She was most recently a recipient of the Academy of Canadian Cinema and Television's 2019 MVP Project Grant, presented by the Prism Prize in RBC Music. Her work and artistic development has also been supported by the Canada Council for the Arts, Ontario Arts Council, Artreach Toronto, Avid and TIFF. Nayani feels blessed to work at the intersection of cinema and social justice, working collectively to create and share screen work that seeks to say something and engage audiences both aesthetically and consciously. Hello Nayani, thank you so much for joining us on the Feminine Festival podcast today. Thanks for having me. So to begin with, can you um, tell us how and when did you enter the world of film? What was your inspiration? Um, I entered the, it's, it's a while, it's a funny story because I've been working in, I had been working and practicing different art forms, um, in lead up to the decision to work in film. I think, um, the simplest answer is I went to school for broadcasting and journalism. And, um, at the time when I was in school, so this is between 2006 and 2010, um, we were seeing the transition into the 24 hour news cycle that, um, you know, CNN and many other stations have made popular around the world. And I knew that I didn't want to work in that type of journalism. I didn't want to do, you know, kind of sound bites and quick interviews and piecing things together for the sake of getting them done fast. And the only other option at that time uh, from what a professor had shared with me was the, the potential to go into documentary filmmaking. Um, and for me at the time, that seemed like the kind of medium um, to work within that would satisfy the kind of storytelling I wanted to do, which was long format and nuanced and detailed and um, gave me time to work on stories and speak with people. And so by my last year of school, there was one documentary class that I had been waiting for. Um, and I worked on a short uh, on shadism in that class with classmates. And from there, it kind of took off. I also have a background in theater. Um, I was acting and writing and starting to direct for theater, assistant direct. And I think the combination of the two is what gave me um, an entryway in the schools I learned, in, the skills I learned in school for, in journalism. Um, but also, I always loved film and television and reading. Like, those were the constants in my life. Um, and the only reason I ended up in journalism school was because I wanted to write and I knew I loved to read and write. And it just seemed like an option for a 16 or 17 year old at the time. Um, so it was a number of factors, but um, definitely being in school for something related. 
um, and seeing what I didn't want to make happen and then deciding there were other ways to make what I wanted to happen possible. Thank you so much for sharing that. It sounds like a very interesting journey, no less. Um, from there on, what catalyzed the intersection of cinema and social justice? Yeah, I mean, you know, I my I think it starts really with my family, like unconsciously. You know, my parents are Tamil, they're from Sri Lanka. They, you know, came to Toronto as refugees um during the height of the civil war, during the civil war itself. And um, you know, there's a huge uh Tamil diaspora from Sri Lanka in particular in Toronto where I was born and raised. And so I think social justice and looking at the situation around the war and being displaced um, as a community, um, you know, you grow up with a certain, um, a lot of questions around identity, I should say, and you grow up with a certain sense of displacement, like home is neither there nor here, um, you know, and I think as I got older and as we as we moved into the last phases of the war in Sri Lanka and the global widespread activism of the Tamil community from Sri Lanka, um, I started to look at identity in a different way. I think growing up in Toronto, you know, and growing up in Canada, you kind of have this hyphenated identity that's, you know, Tamil Canadian or Sri Lankan Canadian or um, what have you, a, a host of other identities, especially in a place like Toronto where, there is literally people from every part of the world. And so um, you, when you're watching these protests and you've never been to a particular place, but that's where your family and your ancestors call home, and you have this disconnect and yet deep connection to a place because of culture and language and, and family itself, um, it started, it triggered something in me. I think it planted a particular seed in me, or maybe the seed was already there and um, it helped to water that seed about looking at identity, looking at social justice, at protests, at activism. Um, and that was in 2009. So I was in, still in undergrad, still in school. Um, and from there, you know, I was working, I think also being in the privilege of being able to go to university, which is a very complicated and fraught and difficult place for so many people, especially, um, you know, for Black and Indigenous and other people of color. It's, it's a difficult space to be because the academy is not an institution that's often safe or made for people like us, especially in this context within North America or Turtle Island. And so, you know, the conversations I was having also being one of very few um, you know, racialized people in my in my program that I was studying within, um, you know, documenting the news and documenting people who look like me and looking at my classmates and how they would tell those stories um, and how we would and, and the discrepancies and difficulties in watching people tell um, other stories and really believing we were voiceless or people from our communities were voiceless. Um, it brought up a lot of complications and questions for me around who gets to tell stories and how they tell those stories and what are their thoughts of the people that they actually are helping to share stories or tell stories about. Um, and at the same time, also, I was getting really disgruntled with school. So I started to, um, I've always been someone who's participated in youth arts programs that are available um, to youth from certain, you know, underprivileged or marginalized communities in Toronto. Um, and growing up in a low income neighborhood, I had access to those, um, 
programmed and so when i was in those spaces i was meeting a lot of other racialized marginalized people um and we were starting to have conversations around identity and the system the systems of oppression that we you know live and operate and play within and so um, i think a number of factors were just um, pushing me to question and to complicate my understanding of things and um, to not look at it so simply or for face value or the way it had been fed to me, um, you know, through the school system, through other systems of learning um, or programming. And I think a combination of those things were already, you know, they were already in motion within me, within my circles of friends and peers and um, even with certain family members. And so I was already on those lines of thinking. And when it came to cinema, because at the same time when I was, you know, exploring again 2009, 2010, really started to take it seriously. Maybe it's film that I want to do. And at the same time, my politics are starting to develop and I'm reading more and having conversations I've never had and um, participating in spaces I've never been in before. Um, the two kind of um, aligned at the perfect timing. I knew from that point on that um, any kind of cinema or storytelling work that I would um, engage in personally as an artist um, would have to engage in you know themes that we look at as social justice as activism but um, you know I just wanted to I wanted to make sure that the storytelling I was engaging in complicated the narrative on many fronts whether it be you know simply representation and the kinds of stories we're telling because we're complicating the idea of what's normalized um, in the screen industries especially here um, you know, as racialized people in this context, but also um, complicating um, what we've what we've come to just accept and really um, working alongside. You know, I don't see myself as an activist, but I do feel like artists and storytellers have a crucial part to play in social justice and activism movements. Um, if not, we wouldn't be the ones that they try to shut down <laughs> first in so many contexts. Um, you know, I don't think those in power who are wielding power um, uh, in ways that are harmful and oppressive know that, um, you know, storytellers and artists um, are people that are always going to challenge what they're doing. And so they try to shut us down first. So, um, yeah, it would be the two, I think because of my identity, my parents and family community experience, um, my experience growing up as a racialized person in this context, um, and my experience even in school, uh, you know, while I was studying, um, you know, storytelling, they all aligned um, for me to take seriously that my work is not just about um, creating beautiful visuals, you know, with strong audio for, you know, the film medium. Um, but it's about utilizing that responsibility to actually say something that matters. Thank you so much for sharing your experiences about being a second generation immigrant in Canada and your experiences with coming to terms with uh, your identity. And I can really imagine how you felt um, like 10 years ago or so about the need to have not only realist, realistic representation, but also the accurate portrayal of the confusion surrounding an identity of people belonging to a diaspora. So thank you so much for sharing. No problem. <laughs> um, so how do you strike a balance between telling a story and avoiding a voyeuristic portrayal of oppression? Yeah, I mean, I think that's always a question. I think that, you know, as an artist and as a storyteller, 
I think on the flip side, some of the conversations I hear, and not generally from, you know, my counterparts who are like um, racialized people or have been marginalized in another way, but, um, you know, oh, we're just artists. We, our job is to create art, we, you know, and that's it. We create what we feel. And I don't, for me, that's never been the case. And I think um, that's helpful because I've never been afforded the luxury of just being, you know, just doing art because everything I do, especially with social, not just I, but of my peers, everything we do, especially with social media, um, and maybe to a difficult and detrimental degree, um, is analyzed and, um, you know, uh, I don't want to say checked as we say here, but, you know, people are always looking very scrutinized, analyzed, um, looked at very carefully to see what the impact is. Um, and in some cases, you feel like you almost don't have the chance to make a mistake, but I don't, um, I'm not opposed to it. It makes me actually, when I'm working on, you know, the stories that um, we are creating for the screen or we're reflecting for the screen. I'm thinking about how people are going to react. I don't, the idea that you don't think about what the audience is going to do, that's never, or how it's going to react, that's never, um, in the last 10 years for the large part, has never been um, a luxury that I've been afforded. And I don't think I should be. I don't think um, I should be afforded that kind of privilege. I think I always have to. And I think maybe that comes from going to school for journalism and having complicated feelings around um, broadcasting as a medium, for example. But I've never um, not thought about the audience. Um, and I think that's, a, I suppose, also comes from, you know, being part of a diasporic racialized community. Um, you know, we know when we see things on the television, everything has an impact, right? We know what we know deeply what misrepresentation feels like. Um, when we see that the media is being used as a tool of oppression, we know what that feels like because we're we're often on the receiving end of not, um, or we have been of not telling our stories from our perspectives with nuance or at least contributing to the storytelling. Um, so for me, I, I don't think I've ever been in a place where I'm not worried or thinking about um, how it will how it will translate, what the impact will be. Um, whether it's honest, whether it's voyeuristic, like I've always had to um, engage audiences at an early point, even if not like, you know, directly, I'm always thinking about them. Um, I'm always thinking about the people that the projects are about. Um, and people are always engaged. And I really believe in a, you know, there's these old models of filmmaking and then there are, you know, and then not that there haven't been other ideas of filmmaking prior. That's why we've come to this place because, you know, we follow in the tradition of other filmmakers, but um, I really believe in filmmaking as a community praxis, right? Like we're working together. We're constantly asking questions, difficult questions. We're interrogating our own work. Um, we're reflecting on our own work and we're taking our time, I think in 2020, you know, because of social media and digital content, we feel um, there is a pressure to move quickly and to create. And um, I'm really trying to challenge that and not um, rush the process to really take my time with those that I'm collaborating with and ensure that we're not, you know, falling into the trap of being voyeuristic or feeling like, you know, this, 
I hate that idea of like being a voice for the voiceless. Like we're not, that's, <laughs> you know, I don't think that's, that's what it is. You know, I saw a quote online and it was, you know, you don't have to be a voice for the voices. You just have to pass the mic. Right. And I, I, I firmly believe in that. So it really is a process of, um, building, building a practice, build, building a practice of creation. That's, that is um, that involves reflection and interrogation of your own work, and that involves taking it slow and taking your time, and having a healthy group of people around you who um, you trust to not just say yes and and agree to everything, but um, who are part of the practice of making it stronger and making it um, more nuanced and making it more honest and healthy like uh, we don't talk about um, art as being healthy often enough like a lot of art is unhealthy <laughs> it's not it's not it's not healthy for the communities that it represents nor is it healthy for the people who are just learning about those communities so um i think that practice is always growing but a, a healthy amount of interrogation and reflection of oneself is is really crucial that was so beautifully articulated, especially when you talked about not having to become the voice of another, but to pass the mic on. And now this really powerful note on art being healthy. Um, on that note, even if you know one reflects or if one starts from a place of deep introspection before creating an art, there is still another tricky line to cross, which is the instrumentalization of the story of oppression. So how do you um, keep that in check? Um, what do you, I'm just trying to get clarity on like what you mean by the instrument, instrumentalization. <laughs> I always struggle with long words. <laughs> no, 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 it happens to all of us. I, I hear you. Yeah. But what I mean is, um, for instance, if, uh, let me give you an example. If you speak mm -hmm. about uh, Donald Trump's principle, the policies being, um, you know, maybe averse to human rights, to put it lightly. Uh, yeah. Also becoming the, the storyteller of one of those impacts. You're talking about people at the border, you're talking about why um, keeping certain people out of, of, the, of the American diaspora, I mean, the American population rather, um, can actually be detrimental to society. So you become then the voice of that person whose story you're telling, and, and then yes. that story becomes an instrument for you to prove a point. So yes, yeah, that's basically what I'm Got it. Yeah, no, thank you for that. Um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I feel like I'm still early in my career so I can speak to like what we've tried to do so far. I think part of it is never, um, it's very easy when you're doing storytelling in any medium um, for the response, especially if it's positive, for you to start, you know, feeling like an expert. And you never really are because you're the person who's really supposed to be translating the story or yeah, translating. I don't mean like language-wise, but just translating it for a particular medium. Um, and so for me, um, so that I don't become a tool or instrument, you know, and 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 and, and um, so that doesn't happen to me. What you described, um, it's really about um, including people who are um, who the film is about, you know, on a larger scale, or who it represents in the process. So for example, the film that um, I'm in post-production for now, which is a narrative feature, so it's a drama, um, you know, came from my grad school research. And, um, you know, I interviewed, uh, you know, first and second generation young Tamil women in Toronto 
um, about, you know, the situation in Sri Lanka at the end of the war and the protests and everything that surrounded that. And that's what inspired one of the things that, uh, you know, a close friend who had been interviewed said at, at the time during my research, my qualitative research, um, said something that inspired the idea for this film. Um, and, you know, and I, and I got her permission to kind of, um, you know, explore what she had said. Um, what she had said had, you know, spoke to, um, you know, our relationship to indigenous communities here. And so then working with a friend who's an indigenous writer and then later another friend whose family were refugees from Iran, um, you know, we started to work on this script together. And all that time it was being informed by what that one friend, but also the other people I interviewed had said. Um, and then, you know, um, sharing it with family members, you know, that I trust who are also second generation Tamil women and, um, you know, sharing it with the, the actor who plays the lead, you know, Tamil character and the supporting cast as well and, and getting her thoughts and also adjusting the script some, in some cases and some of the scenes, you know, in production because, you know, we decided maybe it's better to go this way. So really looking at it as a collaborative approach, not just in the creative process, but in the research and development. Um, and also now before we even finish the film, and I'm just using this as one example, but before we finish the film, we're going to do test audiences to see how people react and to see how people in the community and the multiple communities, right? Because this particular film speaks to like the Mohawk and, you know, First Nations community in Canada or Turtle Island, and then um, the Iranian community here and the Tamil community from Sri Lanka here. And so um, doing test audiences with them, with other people from other communities to see how they're reacting. Um, it's just part of building a, a, a system, really, like a healthier system um, of checks and balances that are not just you working in a vacuum, you know, in your silos as, as quote unquote artists, you know, doing your thing, but that you're engaging um, those communities in every, in, at every stage in, in the ways that you can. Part of it is also making peace with the fact that the story that you're developing um, is based on your experience. I, I you know, for me, I don't, I'm not, other filmmakers, you know, they create things, they, they may say that they create things that are, um, you know, that not their own experience or they're, you know, researching, developing something that's outside of their scope. And that's fine for them. For me, that's never really been the case so far. Maybe one day it will be, but, um, you know, all of the stories that I work on come from the communities that I'm part of or from my own experiences in some way so far. And I'm still early in my career, but, um, you know, I, I want to build and continue to build um, a stronger system of checks and balances, but also at the same time, be very honest that this is just one perspective. And I think that's crucial, the responsibility and being clear that this one story is not a representation of all um, Tamil women, you know, like my experience is different from my own brother or different from my cousins, you know, who are also women identified folks. So um, I am also, I know, I try to remember and try to be very clear that this is not meant to represent an entire community, but it is one experience based on, you know, research, based on conversations, based on personal interrogation, based on, you know, um, checks and, and screenings with audiences that we've had, we've, we've maintained certain ways of um, checking in with the communities that 
um, it's, it is birthed from, but that it's being very clear and being responsible in being very clear from the jump at screenings, you know, um, in publication and press that this is not meant to say everything about one community. And also it's really important to do that because those who are not from your community, um, tend to, <laughs> Um, take it and run with it and take it as gospel for an entire community and you don't want to give them room to do that either. So you have to be very clear with those from outside of the community um, that this is not their chance to paint a whole community with a one brush, you know, one stroke. Thank you so much for giving us further insight into your thought process and creative process. Uh, when you're no problem. I'm sorry to talk so much. <laughs> no, not at all. Please don't apologize for that. It's so interesting to like know more about, you know, the like what we see on screen is never the the entire thing, right? So it's right, of course. <laughs> I'm on a board for a short film festival for women and non-binary filmmakers here. And last night we were writing an application and we wrote that, you know, that you often don't see the hard and arduous journey that filmmakers go through and the many times they, you know, try to give up <laughs> or Absolutely. have to be back. So, yeah. It's a very, uh, probably, I would say like uh, the, the picture that we get as outsiders, as film goers is probably something like, everything is going fine and there was no hiccups, no struggles because you don't tend to show those things, but it's right. completely understandable. Yeah. So just to, just to continue on this, can you tell us what informs your construction and the idea of gaze when you make your films? The idea of gaze. Mm -hmm. <laughs> can you repeat it for me so I can think about it properly again? <laughs> yeah, no problem. Please take your time. Uh, what informs your construction and the idea of gaze when you make your films? Hmm. So, for example, like in a lot of superhero films, there's talk of how even so-called women-centric films are uh, made with a male gaze on them. Like, uh, for example, in most of the Avengers and Marvel films, uh, Black Widow is portrayed in a very sort of hypersexualized manner. And yeah. even if she's fighting or if she has bruises and cuts on her, they're made in a very aesthetically pleasing way, which is not realistic. Right. Whereas if you compare it to a, a, a film with a woman, a director who's a woman or a, a cinematographer who's a woman, for example, in uh, Wonder Woman to a certain extent and probably the upcoming Harley Quinn film, it's a lot different. You can see that there's uh, more consideration into the armor they wear or the, you know, the kind of fight style that they adopt. So that's yeah. also kind of an example. Yeah, I think for me, um, what I think, um, for me, grow, I, growing up in Toronto, okay, so I think, I believe firmly that growing up as part of a diocese, or a community where you're not the dominant or the majority. Um, you know, as a collective, yes, people, you know, in Black and Indigenous, other people of color, and we really separate those groups because experiences are so different, um, uh, you know, between Black, Indigenous, and other people of color here. But, you know, growing up here, yes, we are part of the majority if, we, if you group us together, but we also are all very different and have very different experiences living in this context. But for me, um, growing up in Toronto, where 
um, yes, there's a lot of Tamil people, but you're still in a minority, right? And so, and you're still racialized in a particular way. And that goes further because, you know, there's intersections of multiple identities. Um, you know, my experience, you know, as a cisgender heterosexual woman is very different from someone who may be trans in my community or who may be queer or, you know, who may be Muslim. So, it, you know, maybe mixed race. So obviously there is a, a uh, a, a wide spec, a long spectrum, a never-ending spectrum of experiences and identities. Um, but, but growing up here, you're very, um, you can grow up being very aware of um, your gaze, what informs it, even your, you know, take it very personally, your gaze of, around yourself, like how does um, the systems around you, systems of oppression, systems of influence around you impact your own gaze towards yourself and how you see yourself. Um, for me, you know, growing up, and again, my experience is very different, but not, you know, and definitely not the same and not as difficult in some ways as even people within my community and other communities. But, you know, I grew up very chubby. I'll say that very like overweight or as they may say overweight, chubby, fat, whatever word you want to use. Um, and so I was also always hyper aware of my body as a result, you know, kind of short and very chubby, always hyper aware of like the space that I thought I was taking up, but not really. And, um, you know, how people saw me and, um, you know, the kinds of words people associated with me. I think a lot of um, you know, short, petite, uh, chubby people may be infantilized and call, you know, have a high-pitched voice. So, you know, the words adorable and cute and um, innocent and all of these kinds of um, labels, identifiers that people had for me that really, I think, for a long time infantilized me and kept me, um, you know, marked me as very young and innocent and childish and, and, uh, and, uh, you know, really ugly ideas of being virginal and all these kind of weird gazes that people had of me and my body, my sexuality, um, how I move through the world. Um, and so I was always aware of people's gaze on me, whether it be directly or through, again, as I mentioned, different systems, different, um, uh, you know, the media, being in the school system, um, the news, how they saw people like me. And so um, that always felt really gross. The gaze that people had often didn't feel authentic or real. And it felt like um, in many ways, very, um, yeah, very, very gross and difficult. I don't know what else to word other than say gross. It was like a big ill, you know, like <laughs> people's ideas of me um, did not sit well with me. So I think from a young age, when you look different in any particular way, whether you can vocalize it or name it in any particular way or not, um, you feel what doesn't feel right, right? You feel when the gaze is not honest or appropriate or um, healthy. And so I've always been aware of that. And I think that um, really informs my construction and my gaze when I make my films, you know, um, I don't ever want, and I think also coming from social justice circles and, and friends who are activists and being witness to them and their work, um, and also the work of other filmmakers that I really admire who are, you know, women and non-binary filmmakers who are um, doing things differently and have been. Um, I really, um, I work to really like challenge my gaze and um, 
And even it comes down to how do you, you know, when you talk to your costume designer, when you talk to your cinematographer, when you're talking to your lighting person, how, you know, whoever it may be, makeup, hair, um, how do you want to portray these characters? How do you want to dress and um, adorn your actors? Like, um, how do you want to frame them on screen? What do you choose to frame? Do you want to frame, you know, the small of their back or do you want to just frame like a wide shot that shows them in their context, like being very careful and intentional? Um, before I go to camera, um, I'm very clear about the kinds of shots and frames that I want and I'm very clear with the person who's doing the cinematography. I'm very clear about, you know, um, intentional about, you know, the outfits we pick. Like, how does this outfit, um, you know, I've worked with some really incredible costume designers and stylists. Like, how does this outfit further the story, not like work to satisfy a particular gaze from the outside, especially a male gaze, you know, because I'm often working um, on stories. I mean, I've always worked in stories that center, um, you know, women um, and non-binary folks. And so, um, yeah, being very intentional. I think my own experiences with the uncomfortable gaze that I've felt and also the ways I've internalized um, external gazes um, has really informed and the, and the ways that I'm working through that and healing through that, really the impacts of that um, make me very, and the ways that I still deal with that as, you know, a racialized woman in this world. Um, I'm still, it's, it's always forced me to kind of look at um, the way um, I'm portraying and constructing images on screen. And I think as well as like a racialized woman in, um, in the context of North America, um, in Turtle Island, as indigenous folks call it, um, or know it to be, um, I, I don't think I've ever been afforded not to um, be very careful about the gaze, you know, and how I construct it. And, and um and how i construct images in the story visually um so it's always on my mind because i'm always going through it myself <laughs> thank you so much for sharing that and and also apologies if anything that they asked you triggered you uh, in any way it's oh no i would i would i appreciate that i would have told you i'd be like i can't answer that but no, no i i think it's really I, I appreciate the question i think it's really important it made me think about something i haven't um, you just, you know, you're doing the work, but you don't often think about it. You don't have the time to. You're doing it and you're reflecting, but you, yeah. you're not often answering in this way to folks. So I appreciate it. And if I felt triggered, I would have been like, mm, can't do that right now. Let's go to the next one. <laughs> Thank you. I really appreciate that you just signposted it. Um, but I, I also wanted to say as an aside, I could listen to you all day, Naini. You're so articulate and so... Um, so clear about the way you organize and present your thoughts. Wow. Oh, thank you. I always feel like I'm writing my, like, just, <laughs> just can't go on these tangents. I'm always surprised when people are like, it's clear. I really am happy that it's clear. I try. I try very hard. So thank you. It's very affirming. <laughs> uh, wonderful to hear that. Um, so, yeah, so going from your thoughts on gaze to a project you worked on recently, your, document, uh, your documentary, sorry, called Shadism, um, yeah. which explores discrimination between light-skinned and dark-skinned people within a community. Um, can yeah. you take us through that in brief? Yeah, um, like, <laughs> I saw, sorry, somebody kind of wanted to like, tell it in a way that's fresh, but, um, you know, I mean, you know, as South Asian women, um, we obviously understand uh, you know, as women of color, as all these women, we understand what it means 
what what shadism looks like, right? I don't think any of us can say that we haven't seen that or that we didn't grow up with it. Whether we were impacted directly or we just witnessed it, I think it's part of all um, racialized communities, right? This idea, I think, I mean, obviously there's a common thread of um, colonialism and its many factions, including enslavement and um, the institution of enslavement and um, indentureship and just the colonization of multiple countries and often multiple lands being colonized multiple times over, right? So I don't think that um, as a person of color from any particular background that you or any different background that you have not you don't have some understanding of it, even if we didn't have the words for it growing up, which many of us did not. Um, so, you know, I mean, as a diasporic family who's, you know, my parents, obviously, like I said, refugees at that time, and, you know, most of my community came here as refugees, um, you try to hold on to everything and anything, right, from home. And that includes your ideas of beauty, um, you know, how society is constructed, class, caste, all of these things are held on to, I think, especially strong in like displaced communities because you, you really don't want to disconnect at all um, from back home. And, I, and part of that is also the really ugly and gross thing like shadism and colorism. So, I mean, I grew up with it in my family. I, I growing up was lighter skinned. So I definitely understand what the privilege was. Like, not that anybody said I was more beautiful, but I think I was made to feel really special for being lighter skinned. And I didn't think as a child, I interrogated that. I know it felt weird. And I could, you could see, like, I think if anyone is observant and children are, you see the way other members of your family are being treated differently from you. You see the way they treat you based on X, Y, Z factor. Um, so I knew that there was something that feels really icky about people, I say icky, but really gross about people, um, making me feel like my light skin was something, lighter skin was something, or fairer skin was something to be treasured and protected and to stay out of the sun. That was kind of the commentary I had. It's like, oh, you don't want to get too dark, you know, stay out of the sun and all of these things. Um, it wasn't until I had a conversation with my niece, who I don't like to talk about as much anymore because she's, um, you know, obviously still growing up and going through it, but what I will say is that she, um, she really moved me to um, uh, interrogate it through film, this idea of, you know, this, this, this system of, uh, you know, this insidious cousin of racism, as someone said, called shadism and colorism. I also had gone back to South Asia for the first time in 2009, right before I started working on this doc. So between the conversation with her and a trip um, with two friends to India, uh, South India, and um, uh, not just South India, but different parts of India in 2009. And that was my first time being in that region um, uh, and kind of seeing like, you know, I didn't, I, I didn't grow up with, a lot of people here grew up with Bollywood and Kaliwood and, you know, all aspects of Indian cinema. And um, I did to a certain degree, but I was in a household where we watched it a lot. So when I was seeing all the ads for the first time with brown people, you know, in the place or being, or looking at the television screen in India at that time, and then looking at the people I was seeing on the streets was very different. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, in my eyes, and again, that's coming from this particular context, which is also very different. So I think between, and you know, seeing the commercials for Fair and Lovely in the context of um, South Asia, as opposed to like, you know, on the internet or, you know, briefly on a channel here was very different. So I think between the two things and also having conversations with my friends who are from other communities at the time, um, we 
uh, we were talking about shadism and colorism in our own families. And I started to understand how pervasive it is, how widespread it is in so many communities. And um, I thought, you know, maybe this is something to explore in a documentary and for school. And then it turned into a feature, you know, it posted it online when we were done and I was graduating, it was my final project. And I thought, oh, you know, real filmmakers post things on video. So I put it on video and I put it on Facebook. And at the time I didn't really use social media. I was really anxious about it. And I woke up, you know, on, a, I think a September morning in 2020. 2010 and I had like 60 notifications which I had never had before so I felt a bit of a panic attack and um and then I just couldn't stop from there I knew that I wanted to tell I wanted to document the story from different perspectives in a deeper way um and thankfully we got some funding from a, a community or a foundation here and then it just kind of ran with it for a few years and I, I tell people I think working on Shadow Jason was really my film school because you know, so much of it, you can tell from the quality changing throughout the documentary that I shot a lot of it. And I, you know, because of lack of money and, um, you know, I, I had the privilege of traveling for it. So I got to meet a lot of people from different communities um, and all, all, all of the people involved, um, both on behind the scenes, but also on camera or, or what it, what made it what it was. So, yeah, it was just, life experience, the experiences of my friends who I was talking to, and then my niece that I think oftentimes the innocence and like honesty of a child triggers things that we otherwise wouldn't act on. So that's how it came to be. <laughs> Thank you so much for telling us about your personal experiences with colorism. And as you said, it's probably something every South Indian or even South Asian woman probably goes through. And I think all of us have relatives or friends or just random people who encourage us to use fair and lovely or bleach our skin, use filters on our photos. And it's extremely ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> <So> <laughs> <bad>. <laughs> so I just so laugh because you either cry or you laugh. So you have to laugh at how ridiculous it is. And then you have to try and do something about it. That's, that's all I can think about, you know. That is so relatable. Like one of my favorite phrases in the entire world is fake laugh, fighting real pain. And I think <laughs> this is like a perfect. <laughs> so um, can you tell us a bit about your project, This Place, and the inspiration behind it? Yeah. Oh, I did. I spoke to a little bit too. I alluded to it. But um, yeah, I was doing my research for grad school in... I was in grad school from, wow, time flies, 2012 to 2015. That feels like it was yesterday, but it wasn't. Um, I'm getting old very quickly. I'm happy about that. Um, anyway, sorry. <laughs> Back to the point. Um, yeah, that I was interviewing. So my research was on first, you know, 1.5 second generation Tamil women. So women either that were born and raised born in Sri Lanka, but largely raised here um, in Toronto or born and raised entirely in Toronto or the general Toronto area, greater Toronto area. And I wanted to look at, I was really pushed and moved and felt the need to look at and, and, and talk to other Tamil women about how they felt about the protests that were happening at the end of the war, their feelings towards the Sri Lankan government, their feelings towards the Tamil Tigers, because obviously there's a diverse, you know, a, a lot of different feelings based on your family's experiences and their feelings towards the Canadian government for not really doing anything or stepping in or saying anything um, on a global scale. And 
I just wanted to center the voices of Tamil women from that particular island that um, are, you know, living and growing in Toronto. And when um, I was doing my interviews, a good friend of mine, and she won't mind me saying her name because she's a family friend, Arshika, um, uh, she was doing a lot of activist and student activist work in Toronto and um, was one of the few people that I felt like was doing Indigenous solidarity work or trying to, you know, um, do solidarity with, with Indigenous communities here and felt a responsibility to do so. And she's a phenomenal person and always kind of been like, you know, what, um, someone that I was, I felt like, man, I want to, I want to be able to do my work with that much integrity, you know, she's just a very, that's the word I would describe her as. She has a lot of integrity um, or just an endless amount of integrity, not even a lot of. And so she brought up the question in, in one of my interviews for my research about what does it mean to protest um, on indigenous land that has been stolen um, for land elsewhere that we also no longer have claim to, you know, as um, people who are experiencing the aftermath of post-colonial war and violence um, and genocide. And so, um, and because, um, you know, the people from the island, a lot of them really feel like it was a cultural, not only like a genocide of people, but a cultural genocide of our history on the island there. Um, there is also, you know, the history of genocide in, on this land and Turtle Island with indigenous communities that's ongoing, with, you know, the missing, um, with missing and murdered indigenous women, for example, um, or the way the lands are being disrespected and desecrated and folks are not listening to indigenous communities about the land. So, you know, obviously a number of things. Um, and when I heard her say that, it was the first person time someone had articulated that for me, you know, to, to be able to take up space or not, yeah, to have the capacity to take up space, the privilege to protest um, is wonderful, but um, it's not um, honest if we are not clear about the fact that it's on stolen land um that has been taken away from its indigenous you know caretakers its first peoples and so that kind of sparked an idea for me and in canada we are in this country we had a truth and reconciliation commission um involving indigenous or looking at indigenous communities and a relationship to you know the canadian state and the history the very violent and traumatizing history um, but one thing i found is that there's been other people of color who have migrated here for a number of reasons you know whether through enslavement or um colonial relationships or you know just more recently immigrants and refugees from different contexts um there had been um this conversation that was leaving us out of it as as racialized people and i think that and i just felt like as migrant communities from other places who have experienced similar, you know, um, genocide and colonial violence, um, imperial violence, that we really needed to be part of the conversation with indigenous communities because we we also owe it to to show up in solidarity with indigenous communities as people who found safety or refuge here or who have migrated here for other reasons like economic reasons or whatever they may be, um, and so. Um, I really wanted to explore that in film. I knew I didn't want to write a story alone. I had this idea of like maybe a friendship between a young Tamil woman and a young um, Indigenous woman. I hadn't decided which particular community at the time um, she that other character would be from, but I wanted to write it in collaboration as kind of 
a practice of having difficult conversations between artists from different backgrounds. Um, and I obviously also didn't feel like I could write that story by myself because I'm not indigenous to here. I have no, you know, I, I have no reference point. I'm not the authority on that. And so I ended up meeting a writer, um, director, actor, Jeffrey Jacobs, Governor Head Jeffrey Jacobs, who's from uh, Ganawage, which is a Mohawk um, uh, reservation um, just outside of Montreal. And she was living in Toronto. We met through mutual friends. and. Um, someone suggested, you know, like she may be someone who might be interested in this. And we started meeting a couple of years ago over coffee and I just telling her where I was coming from, where the idea was coming from and build trust over time. Didn't really rush it, just took time talking about it and then started to imagine what the story could be. And at the same time, I was having conversations with a good friend of mine, Goshen Abdemoulay, who's um, Iranian and um, her, you know, her and her parents came as refugees from Iran. Um, her father and mother were both political prisoners for their activism while in Iran. And so um, she and I were having conversations. She grew up in the same kind of borough of Toronto that I grew up in. And just having conversations around, you know, the refugee experience from different perspectives and um, her family's history of activism and her perspective. And at some point, it, I don't even know how it happened, but it just made sense to involve Goshen. I can't even pinpoint the exact moment and Goshen and Devry met and you don't know, there was just a synergy between us. And so we started working on this script and writing different scenes and taking on different responsibilities with the story. And eventually, you know, both um, Goshen and Devry identify as queer. And so, um, uh, you know, them, um, feeling like maybe the story was going in a love direction and so it ended up being um a story that we wrote and developed together about two two women one is Tamil, sri lankan Tamil, and the other is half mohawk half iranian um and they're both reconciling with their fathers who are you know from sri lanka and iran respectively who are refugees at um a similar point in in time and they're falling in love but also um, realizing how much work there is to do with reconciliation within their own families, especially for Jeffrey, who plays um, uh, Yosta, the character who's Iranian and, uh, and Mohawk. Um, you know, what does it mean to be both indigenous and um, some a daughter of some another place that she has not been to and is disconnected from? Um, so it's a very Toronto story. It's about the intersection of um, uh, experiences and lives, you know, and paths crossing between Indigenous and other racialized uh, folks from other diasporic communities and having difficult conversations around that, but also finding friendship and love. And yeah, it was, it's been a long journey, I think, um, uh, from the initial seed to Debra and I meeting to Goshan coming on board. Um, and now, you know, we've shot it, Devry is in it. Goshan also plays a small role in the film that we forced her to because <laughs> we really wanted her to appear in it. Um, and we finished principal photography last June and it's now um, in post-production. It's coming together, we're pulling the pieces together. Um, and it's kind of just wild to see how this one idea, you know, between one conversation between family, friends, um, is leading to this bigger dialogue. Um, you know, we've been invited to speak on the film at panels together and um, talk about our process. So 
Um, it's just wild because you know the impact can be great, but you don't actually know it until the work is, you know, starting to get done. So that's kind of where we're at. And the, the title of this place is also a play on the word um, came up. I think Golshan or Debbie came up with it. I can't remember who. Definitely wasn't me. It was one of those two um, brilliant women. But um, the idea of displacement and both Indigenous communities here have been displaced within their own land, but also people have been displaced to this country from other places. Um, so this place being, uh, you know, a play on that and, um, Toronto being the you know the the name Toronto Toronto or Toronto um, means the meeting place for a lot of people. So um, this meeting place of displaced people. <laughs> that was so powerful. I love the glimpse you gave us of uh, the kind of process that your work involved. Um, you know, just about conversations and the trust building. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah, no problem. I'm happy to. It's good to. I'm in the middle of it, so it's different from shadism or other projects because, mm. um, uh, you know, when you're in the thick of it, it's good mm. to be asked questions and kind of reflect on the process. So thank you. That's beautiful to hear. I'm happy that we're able to give you that. Yeah. <laughs> so right down to our last question, Manny. What are you working on right now, um, and what's coming in the future? Now you did mention that you're in the middle of this process, but. Yeah, anything else and anything else you're looking forward to in the future? Um, yeah, I mean, I, uh, <laughs> I'm excited to work towards finishing this film and raising more money to finish this film. Um, you know, I, I, know, I know that, you know, I've been working in music videos and short films and doc for a while, but um, to finish my first feature film um, is... Um, is uh, it feels wild like on oh, my first narrative feature which is very you know shadism was a mid-length doc feature it was under an hour so it was a different undertaking um but to finish a narrative dramatic film that we wrote it and i directed and um you know made by a collective of mostly women a lot of queer women of color you know just looking at that aspect of it um has been really wild to see it coming together and um, you know, for us in the film world, your first feature is often, your first narrative feature is often um, the gateway to the rest of your career. And so I know once this film is done, hopefully, you know, we are able to take it on a tour of festivals into different regions and then find a home for it to be distributed. Um, so I'm excited to like finish it, to start to work on the other um, projects that I have ideas for. I also love television, so I'm really interested in working on television and directing for TV. Um, and I also like, there are other things that I love, like installation, you know, video work. And um, when I, I think I think we got to it, but one of, one of my mentors is Bradford Young, who's an incredible cinematographer. And he does a lot of like installation work and his own kind of artwork outside of film and spending time with him really reminded me to like go back to that you know i mean having a dance background a theater background dabbling photography i'd really love to explore like other aspects of my work um you know i've had the privilege of like working with awid in the past and i'd like to explore like what it's what it means to work with um uh, organizations and groups that are focused on women's rights and development and activism outside of just, you know, a typical cinema landscape and sphere, you know, working with those tools in other spaces. Um, so for me, yeah, I'm excited about finishing this film. I'm excited about finally 
um, getting, you know, get, starting to get more support for the other projects that are on my slate, uh, you know, exploring, like, working in shorter formatted television, which I think a lot of us are watching a lot of television these days because television is so dynamic and we're not watching these big long seasons, but we're watching really like intentional, um, carefully crafted television that doesn't need to be, you know, 20 episodes can be 10 and still be solid. Um, working in a digital medium, you know, with digital distributors so that, you know, film, my work can be screened globally because I don't think the work that a lot of people create is, low, uh, people of color create is, um, so, you know, it has only one audience. I think we have audiences everywhere our communities are, and I think that's really powerful. Um, and also just start, and just doing more work at the intersection of film and, and activism and um, other kinds of art and genre and mediums. I really, uh, I want to be an artist in a way that's not about being monetized, you know, that, that when you get deeper into film, it's, it's very much, much about the business of film, and I understand that, and I obviously want to, you know, make enough money to live and take care of my family, but at the same time, I want to create space to um, just play. And I think um, working um, in other mediums um, and dabbling and, you know, trying them out will give me the freedom to do that in a different way because I think as you go deeper into career, career, it becomes a more about work and work and work, but you also have to create time for play so that you remember why you started in the first place. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much, Naini, for your time today and for oh, being with us. On <laughs> I honestly learned so much about what goes on behind the scenes when you're putting together a film or a documentary. And it's such a pleasure to hear you speak so passionately about your work and your experiences. Thank you. I feel like there's a documentary someone should make about the process of making films. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think you should help me. That would be amazing. I thought Thank that you, would turn Patrick. out wonderfully. And I think I speak for I think I speak for Katie and all of our listeners when I say that we're super excited to see what the future holds for you and your upcoming projects. And we wish you all the luck in the world for this thing. Thank you so much. I appreciate the support and thanks for having me. This was lovely. <laughs> Thank you. And I also hope we get to watch this place in India sometimes. I'm I'm hoping for a streaming deal. That would be the best thing. I think the intention really is to um, again, find the right partner so that it can be seen across the world because I have community everywhere and I want to make sure my community sees it everywhere, you know? Yes, that's wonderful. Yeah. And fingers crossed. Hoping Thank you. Take care.